Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1114 with a release and air date of Saturday, July 4th, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community around the world, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1114 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The FCC settles with two separate Boston FM radio pirate operators. We'll have the story. The annual 13 Colonies special event is underway this week. A new International Amateur Radio Union Electromagnetic Compatibility Coordinator is announced. What does he do? We'll tell you all about it. A prominent amateur radio operator is helping to lead the U.S. Convalescent Plasma Expanded Access Study. Researchers use 200 years of sunspot observations to create a sun clock. CQ Magazine announces a new contest editor... And Amateur Radio reunites boyhood friends after 60 years. We will have the story. These headline stories will come to you in a moment, along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will talk about the latest ARM processors, which are replacing x86 processors right now. Australia's own Arnold Benshoff, VK6FLAB, will tell you how your antenna is a filter of sorts. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill takes another look at what was happening in the amateur radio community coming out of World War II. And our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will tell us all of the terms that you need to know about all the gear that you use to climb your tower. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in beautiful downtown Albany, New York, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And from our news bureau, just outside Albany, New York, in the Geek Cave Studios, wishing everyone a happy Independence Day weekend, I'm Rich Lawrence, KB2MOB. And recording from New York's Western Catskills in New York State, where the corn is knee-high by the 4th of July, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where summer is settling in, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 20 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Leading off our news this 4th of July holiday, the Federal Communications Commission says it reached a settlement with two operators of pirate radio stations in the Boston area. It said Ersome Jean-Charles and Gerlange Caesar admit fault will pay fines and agree to 20-year compliance commitments, and they'll dispose of their radio equipment. It's an unexpected development. 
In December, the FCC issued notices of apparent liability to the men for operating Radio Concord and Radio Tele Boston, respectively. The Enforcement Bureau negotiated the two consent decrees, which provide for a strict compliance plan over a period of 20 years to prevent Jean-Charles and Caesar from ever resuming unlicensed broadcasting, the commission announced. In the case of Radio Concord, the FCC received a complaint from a local Boston-area broadcaster who said that Radio Concord's broadcast on 106.3 MHz from the Mattapan neighborhood in Boston was interfering with the station's new FM transmitter station at 106.1 MHz. The complaint was investigated by field agents from the FCC's Enforcement Bureau who repeatedly warned John Charles that his alleged broadcasts were in violation of FCC rules. John Charles has agreed to pay a civil penalty of $4,000 and to pay a further penalty of $75,000 if he violates Section 301 of the Act or violates the term of the consent decree. Caesar has agreed to pay a civil penalty of $5,000 and agreed to pay a further penalty of $225,000 if he violates Section 301 of the Act or violates the terms of the consent decree. One might imagine the two men feel they got off lightly. In December, the FCC proposed forfeitures of $151,000 and $450,000 in this case, the latter being the largest fine ever proposed by the FCC against a pirate radio operation. And subsequently, federal law was changed to allow even higher penalties in pirate radio cases. The FCC said that Caesar, operator of Radio Teleboston, had allegedly broadcast three unauthorized transmitters on two different frequencies, which led it to propose the maximum penalty amount for all three transmitters. Chairman Ajit Pai said in December that the NALs in this case were intended to send a strong signal that the FCC will not tolerate unlicensed radio broadcasting. In each case, he said, then, the operator in question was given multiple warnings that he was violating the law. Now both have ceased broadcasting and have agreed not to materially assist anyone else committing such acts, according to the FCC. Boston is one of the cities most plagued by illegal radio operators, as we've reported at various times. The annual 13 Colonies special event got underway this week and is scheduled to conclude on July 8th at 0400 UTC. Stations representing the original 13 British colonies, plus two bonus stations, will be on the air with one-by-one call signs. The event sponsor stresses that participants do not need to work all 13 colony stations to obtain a certificate and do not need to work the two bonus stations for a clean sweep. All HF bands will be in play, with the exception of 60 meters, and simplex on 2 and 6 meters is encouraged. All modes of operation may be represented. This year will mark the 12th occurrence of the event. Look for K2A, New York, K2B, Virginia, K2C, Rhode Island, K2D, Connecticut, K2E, Delaware, K2F, Maryland, K2G, Georgia, K2H, Massachusetts, K2I, New Jersey, K2J, North Carolina, K2K, New Hampshire, K2L, South Carolina, K2M, Pennsylvania. Bonus station WM3PEN will be in Philadelphia with a call sign that commemorates the Pennsylvania Colony's founder, William Penn. The other bonus station will be GB13COL in the UK. The International Amateur Radio Union Administrative Council has appointed Martin Soch 
G8KDF as Global Electromagnetic Capability Coordinator, succeeding Torrey Warren, LA9QL. The Electromagnetic Compatibility Coordinator is a major challenge for all radio communication services, the IARU noted. Radio amateurs are experiencing increased interference caused by unwanted radio frequency emissions from a wide variety and rapidly growing number of electronic devices. The Electromagnetic Capability Coordinator's mission is to ensure that the concerns and needs of radio amateurs are effectively addressed in international standards bodies, particularly CISPR and the International Telecommunications Union, as well as in regional telecom organizations and at national levels through IARU member societies. Assisting in the effort is a network of volunteers with expertise in the field of electromagnetic compatibility coordination. The International Amateur Radio Union President Tom Allen, VE6SH, said the IARU Administrative Council is grateful for Tory's leadership and for his willingness to continue contributing to this vital work. We are fortunate that someone as qualified as Martin was willing to take the reins. He has already represented the IARU effectively at important international meetings, and we look forward to working even more closely with him. Radio amateurs throughout the world support the work of the IARU through membership and involvement in their national IARU member societies. The IARU needs qualified volunteers in these and other fields. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Well-known contester, DXer, and National Contest Journal editor Scott Wright, K0MD, has been substantially stepping back from ham radio while offering his expertise to the U.S. Convalescent Plasma COVID-19 Expanded Access Program. The study began in early April under the leadership of Dr. Michael Joyner, M.D., of the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Peter Marks, M.D., Ph.D., and Dr. Nicole Verdun, M.D., of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, Dr. Arturo Casavedal, M.D., Ph.D., of John Hopkins University, and Wright, who is with the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Marks is AB3XC. The U.S. Convalescent Plasma Expanded Access Program is a collaborative project between the U.S. government and the Mayo Clinic to provide access to convalescent plasma for patients in the U.S. who are hospitalized with COVID-19, Wright told the ARRL. The work has been referenced during White House press briefings and in congressional testimony. The U.S. government-supported study collects and provides blood plasma recovered from COVID-19 patients, which contains antibodies that may help fight the disease. The Mayo Clinic is the lead institution for the program. My role was to organize the infrastructure and the research approach and to help lead the setup of the data collection and of the website teams while overseeing the study conduct and regulatory compliance, Wright explained. According to a June 18th Washington Post article, 
a large study of 20,000 hospitalized COVID-19 patients who received transfusions of blood plasma from people who recovered found the treatment was safe and suggests giving it to people early in the disease may be beneficial. An initial safety report of 5,000 patients appeared in May in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. The safety study on 20,000 subjects referenced in the Washington Post article was published earlier this month in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings. Wright said most scientific studies of this magnitude take months to a year with planning and execution to get underway. In this case, the study team went from 0 to 60 in a few short weeks. We started in less than a week. Most studies recruit 2,500 to 5,000 patients, Wright said. We have recruited over 30,000 patients in 10 weeks, exceeding all expectations. Hospitals in all 50 states and several U.S. territories are participating, Wright said, and more than 8,000 physician scientists are working with the team as investigators at their hospitals. We also helped manage the startup of collection of convalescent plasma by the large blood organizations, such as the American Red Cross, by strategically connecting donor pools and people willing to donate with blood collection centers. Wright's study responsibilities, which are on top of his regular day job, have required him to work daily, including weekends, for all of April, most of May, and all of June. It has been intense, he said. Wright said an FDA announcement of the benefit of convalescent plasma was expected soon. We are working on a third publication now to submit to a major international medical journal for publication on whether the study has shown that use of convalescent plasma reduces mortality, Wright added. The FDA has been inviting donations of convalescent plasma from individuals who have fully recovered from COVID-19. Wright will be the keynote speaker at the QSO Today Virtual Ham Expo August 8th and 9th to discuss the study, its results, and, he said, linking it to skills acquired through ham radio. Researchers in the UK and the US have developed a new sun clock that quantifies extreme space weather and pinpoints distinct on-off times of high solar activity and space weather. The sun clock will assist in planning to protect space and ground-based infrastructure that is sensitive to space weather. The study, quantifying the solar cycle modulation of extreme space weather, was published in Geophysical Research Letters. It explains that the sun clock uses the daily sunspot number record available since 1818 to map solar activity over 18 solar cycles to a standardized 11-year cycle or clock. Extreme space weather events can significantly impact systems such as satellites, communication systems, power distribution, and aviation, a Warwick University news release said, noting that these events are driven by solar activity. By devising a new, regular sun clock, researchers have found that the switch on and off of periods of high solar activity is quite sharp. The researchers' analysis shows that while extreme events can happen at any time, they are much less likely to occur during quiet intervals. The sun clock is aimed at helping scientists to determine more precisely when the risk for solar storms is highest and to plan the impact of space weather on space infrastructure. 
This gains importance as solar cycle 25 is imminent. According to the researchers, no two solar cycles are the same, but using a mathematical technique known as the Hilbert transform, they were able to standardize the solar cycle for the first time. The clock revealed sharp transitions between quiet and active periods of solar activity. Once the clock is constructed from sunspot observations, it can be used to order observations of solar activity and space weather, the university said. This includes the occurrence of solar flares and the 10.7 centimeter solar flux that tracks solar coronal activity. The researchers determined that once passed on-off times are obtained from the clock, the occurrence rate of extreme events when the sun is active or quiet can be calculated. Scientists spend their lives trying to read the Book of Nature, lead author and Professor Sandra Chapman of the University of Warwick's Center for Fusion, Space and Astrophysics said, Sometimes we create a new way to transform the data, and what appeared to be messy and complicated is suddenly beautifully simple. The Intrepid DX Group, a U.S.-based IRS 501c3 nonprofit organization that promotes amateur radio in developing countries, has announced its first youth essay contest. The prize is a new ICOM IC7300 transceiver, which the winner must agree to keep and use for one year. Participants will prepare a two-page essay answering these questions. First, what are your amateur radio goals? And two, what can we do to attract more youth to amateur radio? The competition is open to U.S. amateur radio licensees aged 19 or younger. Submit essays in text or MS Word attachment by July 31, 2020 or mail to the Intrepid DX Group, 3052 Wetmore Drive, San Jose, California, 95148, postmarked by July 31, 2020. The winner will be announced on August 10th on the Intrepid DX Group website and on its Facebook page. You can email for more information. The Intrepid DX Group hopes to make the Youth Essay Contest an annual event. Thomas Beebe, W9RY, has been appointed as the Illinois Section Manager, effective July 1. He succeeds Ron Morgan, AD9I, who stepped down due to health concerns, and has become apparent just as he was ready to start a new term. Morgan was re-elected in the spring section manager election cycle and has served as section manager since February 2015. Beebe, who lives in Marion, will fulfill a two-year term that extends through June 30, 2022. Beebe was one of three candidates who ran for the post in the spring section manager election. He has served as an assistant section manager, official emergency station, and a field instructor and field examiner. Beebe has been a ham for more than 50 years. ARRL Radio Sport and Field Service Manager Bart Yonke and W9JJ made the appointment after consulting with ARRL Central Division Director Kermit Carlson, W9XA. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net.
Alden Sumner-Jones, KC1JWR, of Bennington, Vermont, is thankful for amateur radio after he suffered a medical incident and lost consciousness on June 15th while hiking with others along a remote section of the Long Trail not far from his home. For more details on this story, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from League Headquarters in Newington. An EMT from Appalachian Mountain Rescue who was hiking nearby saw Jones pass out but was unable to connect with 911 via his cell phone. Jones regained consciousness and was successful in contacting Ron Wonderlich, AG1W, via the Northern Berkshire Amateur Radio Club's K1FFK repeater on Mount Greylock. Wonderlich initiated what turned into an eight-hour effort to get Jones off the trail into a medical facility, acting as a relay among Jones, emergency crews, and other agencies involved. As the Bennington Post reported, quote, the Vermont State Police also received assistance from several licensed amateur radio operators who helped facilitate communications, greatly assisting in the rescue, unquote. Matthew Succo, KC1JPU, headed to a staging area where rescue crews were gathering. When he could not make it into the repeater, he employed some ham radio ingenuity to fashion a J-pole antenna from some window line that he had on hand. He casted it into a tree using a fishing pole and got on the air. That did the trick. An individual on site was able to obtain an accurate location for Jones using the GPS on his cell phone. After it was determined the rescuers could not reach Jones using an all-terrain vehicle, Arrangements were made to have a search-and-rescue crew from New York retrieve Jones by helicopter. Amateur radio participants were able to relay critical information, including an accurate location as preparations continued. Jones, meanwhile, took advantage of his time with the EMT and other rescuers to talk up amateur radio and explain how to get licensed. Jones was eventually flown to a hospital in Albany, New York, again taking advantage of the occasion to promote amateur radio to the helicopter pilot and crew. Jones is said to be recovering. According to one account, rescuers were having trouble making contact with the helicopter, so Jones loaned them a better antenna he happened to have. Ham radio saved my life last night, Jones said, and I am very thankful for how everyone helped me, Jones said afterward. The ARRL has announced that Orlando Hamcation will host the 2021 ARRL National Convention in Orlando, Florida, February 11th through the 14th. With more details on the upcoming National Convention, we go to League Headquarters, where Steve Ford, WB8IMY, files this report. The convention will mark the 75th anniversary of Hamcation, one of the largest ham radio gatherings. The convention theme, Rediscover Radio, is a rallying call for radio amateurs committed to developing knowledge and skills in radio technology and radio communication. The convention will kick off on Thursday, February the 11th, with a series of day-long ARRL training tracks, and a convention luncheon at the Doubletree by Hilton Hotel Orlando at SeaWorld. A complete program and list of presenters will be available later this summer, and registration will open in the fall. Hamcation will host the rest of the convention Friday through Sunday, February 12th through 14th, at the Central Florida Fairgrounds and Expo Park in Orlando. Pacificon 2020 has been canceled. Held each October, the event is sponsored by the Mount Diablo Amateur Radio Club and hosts the ARRL Pacific Division Convention. 
Pacificon Treasurer Jim Simons, W6LK, said, quote, The Pacificon Committee has been hard at work planning Pacificon 2020 each and every day, but COVID-19 really has made the event untenable. We are looking at options to provide some content for the amateur radio community via the web or virtual seminars, unquote. Amcation is sponsored by the Orlando Amateur Radio Club, an ARRL-affiliated club. Orlando Amateur Radio Club is supported by volunteers from radio clubs throughout the region. This year, an estimated 24,000 people attended the all three days of the event. Details on tickets and information about forums, exhibits, including information for vendors and tailgaters, testing, travel, and preferred hotels with special rates are all on the Hamcation website. Online ticket sales begin in August. Online ticket sales will begin in August. Tickets purchased and postmarks by December 1st, 2020 will cost $15 and are valid for all three days. ARRL and Hamcation acknowledges this year's pandemic has introduced uncertainty into any long-term planning. Both organizations will follow all government and health requirements and guidelines as plans are committed for the 2021 event. The September issue of CQ Magazine will feature the debut column of CQ's new contesting editor, Tim Schapa, N3QE. The magazine has named him as the successor to Dave Sadal, K3ZJ, who wrote the monthly contesting column for the magazine for five years. According to a CQ press release, Dave has stepped down to tend to increasing work responsibilities. Tim, who lives in Bethesda, Maryland, and is secretary of the Potomac Valley Radio Club, is an active and seasoned contester and a top winner consistently in the USA Tribander Wires category of the CQWPX contests. He said in the press release that he hopes his column will provide encouragement for individuals and clubs and inspire them to improve their skills and stations through contesting. Tim has been licensed since the age of 10. The following candidates for seats on the AMSAT NA Board of Directors have been found to have their membership in good standing and their nomination credentials in order. Howard DeFelice, AB2S, Mark Hammond, N8MH, Jeff Johns, WE4B, Robert McGuire, N4HY, Bruce Page, KK5DO, Paul Stetzer, N8HM. AMSAT will elect three voting members of the board this year, with seats going to the three candidates receiving the greatest number of votes. Two alternates will be chosen, based on the next highest number of votes received. Ballots will be mailed to AMSAT members by July 15th. On May 30th, operators at WX4NHC at the National Hurricane Center, working from home, conducted the annual readiness check of the station and of other amateur radio stations and operators around the country and the world. WX4NHC is marking its 40th year of public service in 2020. Assistant Amateur Radio Coordinator at NHC, Julio Rupol, WD4R, reported that five WX4NHC operators made 146 contacts with U.S. and Caribbean stations. Despite poor HF propagation, operators made contacts with stations as far north as Maine and as far south and west as Aruba and Curaçao, Puerto Rico, and Texas. Operators also made many contacts using digital modes, including Winlink, as well as Florida's statewide Sarnet UHF repeater network that connects 27 repeaters from Key West to 
to Tallahassee. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Uh, welcome. Good to see you. This is not a show for, uh, for you know, showing off our geek knowledge. Well, occasionally we'll get that. I can't help it. But really, it's not supposed to be that. It's supposed to be a show where we geeks get together to help you, adorable people, understand technology. I am uh, bilingual. I speak both tongues, geek and normal. So I will be your guide to this weird and wacky world that's changing everything. I don't know if uh, the world really realizes it, but we, there, this past week was kind of a watershed, an important transition or the beginning of an important transition in technology a transition that began in 2007 with the release of the iphone it was right about right about now 13 years ago the uh, first iphone came out and i mean we all know i don't think i have to tell anybody what a difference the iphone made in the world you know, it, I mean, it wasn't, it was started with the iPhone, but then everybody copied it. And the Android phones, which look very much like the iPhone, a slab of black glass, became very popular too. Let's not, let's not say Apple owns the market by no means, but they started it. Then something else happened that maybe, I mean, it changed a lot of things. Suddenly you have a supercomputer in your pocket. You're always connected to the internet. Mm, that's really an interesting transition. Uh, you have applications you can run on these little pocket computers that can connect you to people, social. I mean, there would be no social media if it weren't for smartphones, right? I mean, we had them on the desktop. I'm not saying, you know, you don't have desktop social media, desktop Twitter, desktop Facebook, but most of the usage now is mobile. Most computing is mobile. That's a big transition. Under the hood, though, there was a big transition, too, because unlike all the computing up to that point and ever since the 70s, these new computers were not based on a chip design we call x86. Intel created it, but others made x86 chips, including AMD. Those chips really were dominant in desktop computing. Laptops and desktops had no place in mobile and Intel tried. It wasn't that Intel didn't try, but their chips, for some reason, they couldn't figure out how to make them low power enough, cool enough to run in little tiny devices. So they just gave up. They, gave, they literally gave up. And companies like Qualcomm and uh, Samsung and others came along with their versions of these chips. Apple, of course, made their own chips. Uh, all based on, uh, not x86, but a different architecture called ARM. No, it's not. It's similar. It's different. It's a computer. It's a computer. From the point of view of those of us who use them, there isn't probably a whole lot of difference. But from the point of view of the designers, there is. ARM, which stands for Advanced Risk Machine. It's not R-I-S-K. It's R-I-S-C, Reduced Instruction Set Computer. 
was much lower power, ran much cooler, did fewer things. That's the reduced instruction set. Didn't do as many things as the Big Brother X86 did, but it did it more efficiently. And it also began a transition that we call now the system on a chip. Because if you've got a small device, little pocket-sized computer, the last thing you want to do as a manufacturer is have 12 different chips on there. You want to make as few as possible. So they got more and more incorporated into the system on a chip, memory, radios, interfaces to storage. Of course, the processor itself, a graphics processor later that would do all the graphics, the drawing on the screen. These systems on a chip became very, very powerful. And they were all based on this risk architecture. Lower cost, lower power consumption, cooler running, not so hot. That's important too, right? In a little device like this, there's no fan in your phone. And this transition turned the world on its edge, on its ear, because no longer were the dominant form of computing done on laptops and desktops. It was in your pocket. Almost all the computing being done these days is done in your pocket. Now, of course, it... You know, that internet connection in your pocket has to go to a more traditional big machine in a server somewhere. But even those started to feel the change. And we're starting to see them move to ARM. And, of course, the big change happened this week when Apple said, you know what? We're not going to make any more computers based on the x86 architecture. Goodbye, Intel. Now, Apple doesn't own, you know, the desktop marketplace. It's at best 10% of desktop and laptop computing. It doesn't, frankly, only owns about 20% of the phone space. In the U.S., it's more like 50%. It's, but it's not even dominant in phones. But it is highly influential, just as the iPhone influenced every other smartphone after it, all running on chips that Apple had chosen, the iPhone's chips or Apple design, but they're based on this ARM architecture. Just as everybody followed the leader there, in desktop computing, I think everybody might follow the leader there and it might be bye-bye to the x86 architecture, which, let's face it, is pretty old. came out in the 70s. It's almost 50 years old now. Um, that's, you know, that's a, that's a pretty old system. For computing, 45 years is a lifetime. More than a lifetime. Several lifetimes. And we really have felt the pain of that. A lot of computing has been hobbled by this x86. We worked hard to make it, you know, do a lot of stuff. But that, that chip in your desktop computer, the Intel i5 or i7 or maybe a Xeon, that thing uses more power than a light bulb. Several light bulbs. There's a lot of heat. That's why it's people with fast processors sometimes you have water-cooled computers like a, <laughs> like a car on your desk. They generate a lot of heat. And what is heat? Well, heat is wasted electricity. That, that heat is not been, it's not going towards computing or getting a job done. It's just, it's wasted electricity. So heat is not a good thing. It wears out chips and it shows that you're inefficient. Apple announced that they're going with what they call Apple Silicon starting this year, I think. And they said this transition will take two years. My suspicion is it'll be over by the end of 2021, by the end of next year. All Apple computers, all Macintosh computers will be running on these new Apple chips. And yeah, they're only 10% of the market, just like the iPhone's only 20% of the market. But watch, <laughs> this is the beginning of the end, not just for Intel, but for this whole dated architecture. This is a change in the way we think of computing. This change has been going on in other ways, too, because uh, 
frankly, and Microsoft knows this. Today, this week, Microsoft announced we're closing all the stores. You know, we closed them for COVID. We're not going to reopen them. 86 stores worldwide. They, that's it. We're out of the store business. Now, why would Microsoft say we're getting out of the store business? Well, obviously, they weren't making money on their stores. But it also, I think, says something about the future of computing. Hey, Microsoft doesn't have a mobile phone platform. They kind of have mobile computers. But they're like tablets. But that's still, a, that's still a laptop, let's face it. I think Microsoft's starting to say, hey, maybe the writing's on the wall. You know, it's actually started five years ago for Microsoft when Steve Ballmer, the CEO, left and a guy named Satya Nadella took over. Satya Nadella came from the cloud side of Microsoft. He ran Azure, their cloud services, and he has slowly been repositioning Microsoft away from computers, PCs, and more towards the cloud. That's where the future of Microsoft lies. It may be where the future of computing lies. We're in the middle of a big transition. It's going to be fun to watch. I'm actually thrilled because it's been getting... <laughs> Boring's not the right word, but you probably have noticed that your computer, a computer you bought five years ago is not appreciably slower than the computer you'd buy today. The smartphones have kind of stagnated. They're getting bigger and you know weird things are happening. They're dropping headphone ports and stuff, but really a slab of glass has looked pretty much the same over the last five, six years. We're in a plateau... That plateau is about to end, and things are about to get very interesting. And thank goodness for me, because that's what I do. <laughs> so over the next year or so, as we talk about tech on The Tech Guy, I think we're going to see some interesting things happen. And that all you can, you can all pin that on the events of Monday this week, when Apple said, you know what, bye-bye, Intel. Boy, I mean, Intel was, was a big, big name in personal computing for the last 40 years, wasn't it? I wonder what its future holds. Where will Apple Silicon be manufactured? We don't know a lot about Apple Silicon. In fact, I think that's a placeholder. I don't think that's the name. Right now, Apple in its iPhones uses the A series. It started with the A4. We're currently uh, the highest level chip Apple makes today is the A12Z. I think it's Bionic. That's a terrible name. And I'm hoping Apple will not be continuing with this silly stuff. But at the same time, you know, I don't, you know, Threadripper, that's what AMD calls their chip. That's not a great name either. Threadripper. That's marketing. Just, you know, uh, a nice i7 isn't great either. i99U, or, you know, no, that's not great either. So I'm sure Apple will come up with something. They won't manufacture them themselves. It's very unlikely. Most companies don't because it's expensive to build what we call a chip fab, short for fabrication facility. They can. They used to be a billion dollars to build a chip fab. I think it's more now. They're very expensive. So I think it's likely that Apple will contract this out. Right now, they get chips built. I think most of their chips are built by the Taiwan Silicon uh, Manuf Silicon. The it's hard. It's a lot of letters. The Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. That's why they call it TSMC. That's out of uh, Taiwan. They may get chips. I don't believe they make any chips in China. They may get chips made. South Korea uh, also has some very good chip manufacturing capabilities. And actually, Intel makes its chips all over the world, including in Oregon. So it's possible uh, that Apple will be looking at getting a fab in the U.S. But my guess is they'll go to TSMC. That's where they get most of their stuff done these days in Taiwan. So that's it's an interesting um, world we live in because the chips that are running in our computers are kind of 
made <laughs> they're designed by one company, incorporated by another, made by a third. So in the case of the iPhone, Apple designs the chips as they have since the very beginning. But they're designing them based on an architecture, a chip design that they license from that ARM company I was talking about. That's why they're called the ARM chips. And then they manufacture them with another company, in most cases, TSMC. So <laughs> it's, uh, and I don't think that's going to change, actually. I think what Apple's doing currently is probably what well, Apple will keep doing. So the answer is more of the same, really. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. What was the post-war world of amateur radio like? Let's take a look at our hobby as it existed in the late 1940s. In November 1945, amateurs were allowed back on the air on the 10-meter, 5-meter, and the new 2-meter band. The 5-meter band from 56 to 60 megacycles was temporary. By March 1946, we were moved in the great post-war frequency shuffle to our new 6-meter home from 50 to 54 megacycles. As for the new 2-meter band, it replaced our old 2.5-meter allocation, which ran from 112 through 116 megacycles. Throughout 1946, the military gradually vacated the 80, 75, 40, and 20-meter bands, turning them back over to amateur operations. We lost a few frequencies. The 160-meter band was staying in the hands of the military for Loran radio navigation, and we lost the top 300 kilocycles of 10 meters from 29.7 to 30 megacycles. To compensate us for this loss, the FCC in 1946 gave hams an allocation at 27 megacycles to be shared on a secondary basis with industrial, scientific, and medical devices. Dubbed the 11-meter band, it was unique as the only HF allocation where A0 and A2 emissions were allowed. The amateur population was pushing 60,000, and the FCC was running out of W call signs in the nine call areas. So, the FCC created the 10th call district in 1946 and redrew the district boundaries. The license structure was the same as before the war. Class A hams had all amateur privileges, including exclusive use of the 75 and 20 meter phone bands. Class B had all CW privileges and phone operation on 10 meters and above. Note, at that time, 40 meters was CW only and 15 meters didn't exist yet. Class C had the same frequencies as Class B, but it was a mail order license for those in remote areas. 
The only change the FCC made to the license structure in the 1940s was to allow applicants to copy the code either by printing or by longhand. Prior to the war, the code test had to be copied in longhand only. Most hams used CW or AM phone, but there were two new modes on the horizon. Narrowband FM enjoyed a brief surge in popularity. QST had several articles on VHF and even HF FM operation. Phase modulation, a variation on FM, made its first appearance in 1947. But the big news was something called SSSC, or Single Sideband Suppressed Carrier. SSB, as it would eventually be called, appeared on the ham bands late in 1947. Throughout 1948, QST was full of articles on this new mode. And how do you get your FM or sideband signal to the antenna? Try an item developed during the war, coaxial cable. And with coax came a new concern over reflected power. Thus, the first SWR meters were described in QST. So, what rig do you want to use on the air? How about war surplus? Starting in late 1946, the pages of QST and CQ were filled with ads for military surplus equipment. Numerous articles showed how to modify these rigs for amateur use. The most popular war surplus receiver was the BC-342, which was built like a battleship and tuned from 1.5 to 18 megacycles. I operated one in my novice days. Maybe you want a new rig. Try the Halicrafters model S40, the Hammerlin HQ129X, which was another receiver I owned, the National NC46, or the Collins 75A. But the Packard of the post-war radios had to be the Halicrafters SX42 receiver. This Radio Man's Radio had every possible feature, tuned from 540 kilocycles to 110 megacycles, and cost $250 in 1946. That's about $1,700 today. Perhaps you would like to build your own rig. GE, Sylvania, and RCA had pages of ads showing off the new miniature and sub-miniature tubes. The sub-minis were only one and a half inches tall and three-eighths of an inch wide. For those who think the 2-meter HT was an invention of the 1970s, it may surprise you to learn that they existed in 1947 using those tiny tubes. But be careful when you get on the air. A new term is finding its way into the amateur world. TVI. In 1947, the FCC eliminated TV Channel 1 to reduce 6-meter interference, but amateurs had to learn to shield their equipment. With the help of good engineering practices, the TVI monster was kept at bay. Sort of. The Atlantic City Conference was held in 1947. Hams gained a 15-meter band, which was eventually allocated to us in 1952. Amateurs proved their worth as two disasters, one natural and one man-made, struck Texas in April 1947. Tornadoes sliced through the state, killing 150. And, in Texas City, an explosion on board a freighter set off a chain reaction that killed 600, wounded 2,000, and destroyed two square miles of the city. Dozens of portable and mobile stations 
rushed to the scene and provided necessary communications on 75 and 10 meters. Also, on a somber note, Kenneth B. Warner, W1EH, the secretary and general manager of the ARRL since 1919, died in 1948. By the way, do you need a job? Are you bored with your life? Do you crave adventure? Then Helicrafters has a job for you. In the fall of 1947, they are sponsoring a six-month expedition to the Dark Continent, Africa, the Belgian Congo to be exact. They need an experienced Class A amateur to operate the radio equipment. If you feel you are qualified, send them your application by July 1st, 1947. Void were prohibited. Finally, what's an amplifying crystal? You don't know? Well, maybe you know it better by its other name, the transistor. This new device was first described in the October 1948 issue of QST. No one at that time realized the full potential of this little component or knew how it would revolutionize the world of communications. In our next installment, we will take a look at the 1950s, 1958 to be exact. This is the ARRL Propagation Forecast for Friday. The sun has returned to its spotless ways, so the solar flux index has dipped down to about 69. There may be a blast of solar wind arriving this weekend, but it shouldn't cause much disruption to the HF bands for field day. On VHF and UHF, 6 meters is likely to be the go-to band for field day, since sporadic E-band openings are still popping up almost every day. However, hams in western Oregon, northern California, and those operating in a zone from Mississippi northeast through Virginia should be on the lookout for tropoducting on 2 meters and up for the next several days. And now with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO. Recently, there has been talk on the AMSAT bulletin board about having a HEO, or High Earth Orbit Satellite, again. The benefits are that you can talk for an extended period of time, hours, and the satellite footprint is usually about one-third of the Earth at a time, if not more. Of course, it would be great to once again have an AO10, AO13, or AO40 type satellite. AMSAT is looking to accomplish this, in the Gulf series of satellites. The goal is to start with a LEO, advance to a MEO, or medium Earth orbit, and then a HEO. The reason for the steps is that the days of getting a launch for free, or close to it, is gone. Very few launch providers want to take up space with a freeloader. The Gulf series of satellites will be three U CubeSats, have deployable solar panels, three-axis attitude control, software-defined radios, work on VHF and UHF, and ultimately C-band, which is 5.6 GHz for the uplink, and X-band, 10 GHz for the downlink. This mode is sometimes referred to as 5 and dime. You would have a ground station that uses a small antenna and a digital receiver, unlike the large antennas that were used for the previous HEO satellites. Each Gulf satellite will incorporate a little bit more of the project until we have the HEO satellite that can be launched at a reasonable cost. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts.
foundations of amateur radio. The single most discussed topic in amateur radio is that of antenna design. That and medical procedures on 80 metres, but I kid. Previously, I've discussed the notion that all frequencies are on air all the time, and that your traditional radio uses much of its electronic circuitry to filter out all the things you don't want to hear. Parallel to that is the concept that you tune your antenna to be resonant on a particular band or frequency. As amateurs, we might look for a wideband antenna that makes it possible to use our radio across several bands. We often construct our antennas to be multiple harmonics of a band, so we can have access to more spectrum without needing more physical antennas. None of this is new, and as an amateur, you'll likely spend the rest of your days improving your antenna situation, or at least talking about it, if not outright bemoaning the lack of antenna space, family approval, budget, or some other excuse. As I started my journey into software-defined radio, a new idea occurred to me. If an antenna is a resonant circuit, could you think of your antenna as a filter, as in something that leaves out the things you don't care about? In and of itself, I'm sure I'm not the first to consider this notion, but the idea means that you essentially turn your idea of an antenna on its head, from something that receives to something that rejects. Consider, for example, the small transmitting loop antenna, often also called a magnetic loop antenna. It's got one characteristic that isn't often considered a benefit. It has something called a high Q, or a high quality factor. The higher the Q, the narrower the bandwidth. I should digress here for a moment. Q is a number. Big number means narrow bandwidth, little number means wide bandwidth. It's easy to calculate. If you look at an SWR plot of an antenna, you'll see a curve where the bottom of the curve is the lowest SWR of your antenna. That's the center frequency. You'll also see two points on the same curve, where the SWR hits 2 to 1. If you take the center frequency and divide that by the difference between the two edge frequencies, you'll have the Q of that antenna. Using numbers, consider an antenna that's got an SWR below 2, between, say, 7 MHz and 7.2 MHz, a bandwidth of 200 kHz, you'd have a center frequency of 7.1 MHz. The Q of that antenna would be 7100 divided by 200, or a Q of 35.5. If you had an antenna that had a bandwidth of 5 kHz at 7.1 MHz, it would have a Q of 1420. And just to wrap that up, this is helpful because just comparing bandwidth on different antennas doesn't tell you enough. Is an antenna that has 400 kHz bandwidth on 20 meters more or less selective than an antenna with 200 kHz bandwidth on 40 meters? What about 100 kHz on 80 meters? Back to the small transmitting loop antenna, or mag loop. If you're using such an antenna on an amateur band, like say the 40 meter band, you'll likely have to retune your antenna every time you even think about changing frequency. I've had the frustration of using a manual version of such an antenna, and it can wear thin very quickly. I'm bringing this up because it can also be a benefit. Imagine that you need to make a contact on a busy band during a contest. Often you'll find yourself setting up the filters on your radio, trying hard to remove all the extraneous noise that comes from strong signals nearby. What if your antenna could help with that? 
What if you thought of your antenna as a pre-filter, something that makes the job of extracting just that signal from the bit of spectrum you're interested in? My point is this. We're talking about an antenna that from one perspective can be a pain to use, requiring constant retuning, constant adjustment, just to get on the air and make noise. From another perspective, that very same antenna is a way to filter out the things you don't want to hear and extract the signal you care about. How you approach this depends on your perspective, and just considering your antenna as a filter might help you see another side of your antenna system that you hadn't considered before. How you use this is entirely up to you. For my money, I'll be doing more experiments. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. Climbing gear has changed a lot over the years. Newer belts and ropes feature designer colors and patterns, sporty names, and sometimes hefty price tags. For the newcomer to the world of climbing gear, there's lots of terms to learn. With some regard to dictionary correctness, here's a list of terms used by climbers found in catalogs, books, and magazines. A carabiner is usually an oval or D-shaped ring with a swinging latch. Sometimes the latch has a spinning locking mechanism. Climbers call them beaners. Features include bright colors, different strengths, shapes, latch types, and more. An ascender is a device used for climbing with a rope. A belay is a safer method of controlling the upward or downward climbing movement of another person. A brake is a friction device for controlling the passing of rope past a climber. A descender is a device for climbing down. This is usually a rappelling device, like a double ring or figure eight with ears. Diplomacy is used after you spend too much time rappelling on someone else's tower. Kern mantle is a rope consisting of many parallel fibers contained within a protective sheath. Prusiking is climbing. Rappelling is to slide down a rope in a controlled manner. A static rope is one that stretches 2 to 4% under a 180 pound load. This is a low stretch rope. A climbing shoe is an athletic shoe with a sticky, flexible rubber sole. And a strap is a cloth, belt-like device with many functions. In all honesty, sport climbing gear is not designed to be used on towers. Your best protection is experience and information. While there are many things rock climbing and tower climbing do not have in common, there are just as many that they do, so look to this sport for a wealth of safety information. Another aspect of climbing I do frequently is night climbing. I climb at night out of necessity and preference. Most of what you need to see on a climb is generally found right in front of you. One of the biggest distractions I deal with is sightseers, traffic, and general noise. Since Mother Nature tends to quiet down at night, I found night climbs to be both quieter and faster. Using a head strap mounted lamp, I have been able to see all I need to with none of the distracting scenery and ground movement readily available during the daylight hours. Whenever we start into a new hobby, learning the jargon is a big part of the learning curve. The sport of climbing is ripe with jargon. I hope you've recorded this segment to help you understand some of the terms used by climbers. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Clear, sober minds must be in charge. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. 
The Daily Mail newspaper has published an update on the case of radio amateur Russell Hill, VK3VZP, from Drowewen in Victoria, who along with a friend has been missing since March 20th. Russell was camping in the remote Wanagata Valley, and his last amateur radio contact was with Rob Ashland, VK3BEZ, at 6 p.m. on March 20th. He's not been heard from since. On March 21st, the campsite was found with the tent burned to the ground, and Mr. Hill's Toyota Land Cruiser sitting next to it. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. QSO Today podcast host Eric Guth, 4Z1UG slash WA6IGR, has announced that the first QSO Today Virtual Ham Expo will take place Saturday and Sunday, August 8th and 9th. Attendance is free to all, registration is open, and there are early bird prizes for registering now. Built on a live virtual reality platform used by Fortune 500 companies and major universities, the ARRL sanctioned Ham Fest will feature a lineup of well-known speakers. Guth and his team, including George Zafropoulos, KJ6VU, have assembled more than 50 of the best ham radio mentors in multiple tracks to address this conference from the Virtual Expo's auditorium. Presenters will include Ward Silver, N0AX, on grounding and bonding, Glenn Johnson, W0GJ, on de-expeditions, and John Portune, W6NBC, on building slot antennas for antenna-restricted locations. Demonstrations of new amateur radio gear will be presented, and attendees can speak with exhibitors via video and audio or by chat, as well as interact with others online. This platform simulates a full convention experience with an exhibit hall and exhibit booths staffed by live attendants, speaker auditorium, lobby, and lounges, the announcement said. Guth, an ARRL member, decided to go forward with the virtual event after many in-person ham radio conventions were canceled because of the pandemic. ARRL will be among the exhibitors filling the virtual exhibit hall. Attendees will be able to share ideas and network with each other via the virtual platform. Following the 48-hour live event, audio and video from the presentations and resources published by the exhibitors will remain available to registrants on demand for 30 days. Members of the Military Auxiliary Radio System will conduct an HF Skills exercise July 20th to the 24th to hone their operating skills and messaging handling capabilities. Mars members will be reaching out to the amateur radio community via the 60 meters channel 1 net on 5330.5 kilohertz dial twice a day, the Saturn HF net 14.265 megahertz, and by contacting various stations via HF link throughout the exercise. Participating Mars members will be requesting assistance with collecting county status information as well as airport weather information called METARS. Mars members will also be passing ICS-213 messages to numerous Department of Defense, Federal, and amateur radio addressees. This exercise will be announced via WWV at 0010 and via WWVH at 0050 starting on or about July 13th. 
WWV and WWVH listeners will be asked to take an online listener survey. This HF radio training event will not impact regular communications. A Department of Defense program, Mars organizes and trains amateur radio volunteers to operate in military radio networks to support HF radio contingency communications. Among other missions, Mars provides communication support to civil authorities and assists in establishing normal communication under emergency conditions. A special tribute to radio history has been called off just before it was scheduled to happen. The annual Night of Nights event, held annually on July 12th at a historic maritime commercial telegraphy station, will not be taking place at radio station KPH this year. The building is one of several shuttered inside the Point Reyes National Seashore by the pandemic. KPH was originally silenced on July 12th, 1999 but was soon restored by the Maritime Radio Historical Society, which put it back on the air with the station's vintage equipment and the amateur call sign K6KPH. Idled once by history, it is silenced this time by a pandemic. Richard Dillman, W6AWO, the Society's founding member, said, however, that hams may opt to activate on July 12th from their homes instead using their personal calls followed by slash MRHS. Watch for updates on the Society's website, radiomarine.org. Meanwhile, the New England Historical Radio Society, licensed operator of commercial ship-to-shore station WNE, hopes to uphold the spirit of the evening. The station is expected to be on the air that same night at 8 p.m. local time, transmitting high seas weather for the North Atlantic, according to the group's president, Stephen Russell, WA1HUD. Be listening on 472 kilohertz. And finally this week, a story about how amateur radio brought together two friends separated by 60 years. Two radio amateurs who were in school together in Austria decades ago have reconnected via VoIP ham radio. One of the two had moved to the U.S. and they lost touch. On June 15th, Arnold Hubisch, OE1IAH, heard a call via Echolink from Albin Enstother, KK9HAM, near Spokane. At first, I did not want to respond as I was working on a program, but as I know that usually nobody responds here to calls in English, I answered, recounted Hubisch, who is also KN6EYB and fluent in English. As it turned out, they chatted for some 20 minutes. Because each was familiar with geography on both sides of the contact, they had a lot to talk about. Hubisch learned that Enstaller was born in Austria and had relocated to the U.S. years earlier. He pronounced the local city names in perfect German, but asked him to run the QSO in English as he felt more comfortable to do so, Hubisch said. A few minutes after the contact ended, Hubisch turned his attention to serving as the net control station on a daily net on a local repeater in Vienna. I mentioned the contact with KK9HAM and noted that his name was Albin, a name not common in Austria. That caught the ear of one of the locals, Gerhard Weissenbuch, OE1WED, who recalled someone named Albin from school in Styria about 60 years ago but had lost touch with him. Weissenbuch wondered if it could be the same person. I initiated contact via email between them as I knew Albin had come from that area of Austria, Hubisch said. They found out that they had shared a desk in school. KK9HAM and OE1WED arranged a sked via Echolink a few days later. It was an intense, very emotional, funny QSO in a wild mixture of English and German, Hubisch said. 
Without our hobby, these two former school friends would never have had a chance to meet again. And Sother later emailed Hubish. I am still speechless about this get-together with Gerhardt, Arnold, and other members of the group, he said. What a memorable day. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like the W0GMM repeater on 147.285 MHz in Grove, Oklahoma, serving Northeast Oklahoma, Southwest Missouri, and Northwest Arkansas. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.